How good it is to be back. Wow, what a, what a fun thing to be here. Been uh, about uh, nine and a half, ten years down in Bluffton, uh, ministering at a church there, and uh, just recently moved back to Mount Pleasant, sort of semi-retired, or as I like to say, I'm just plain tired. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, God's refreshing me once again, and I love having the opportunity to preach at uh, places that I've uh, never preached before, or even in places that are very familiar. So if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at the end of the service. Uh, today we're going to be working out of uh, Jude chapter 24, excuse me, not chapter, chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, and I invite you to turn there, and uh, hope uh, indeed as we kind of work through this in sort of a running commentary style with particular emphasis on one point, uh, you'll be able to pull all of it together and take home what God would bless you with. So may I read for us Jude verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. And may we pray. Father, I certainly can't do this justice in in my own strength. Would you send your spirit to give me liberty and direction and give our listeners discerning minds and hearts so that they may Indeed, uh, take this word and uh, know your truth uh, contained therein. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was young and sitting in a similar congregation to this, I would sort of sit over on the aisle side, on the outside aisle, stare out the window and try to decipher this foreign language that was coming at me. You know, the church has somewhat of a foreign language, right? Every now and then they throw out a little Latin on you, you know, a sola scriptura or something to that effect. And uh, they have an invocation. We don't use that word in our normal parlance to very often. Um, or there's the, um, the prayer of petition, right? And there's the doxology. And I always was curious at the end what a benediction was about. I could sort of piece together an invocation, an invocation calling on God to come and, and be present, and petition wasn't too hard to figure out. We need to ask the Lord for what our needs are. But then there's this strange moment at the end when uh, a guy stands up and raises his hands and uses very poetic language to kind of simply get to the back where he can shake hands? Or is there more to it than that? I've kept asking myself when I was young and even on into my uh, more mature years, what good is a benediction? What good is a benediction? That's essentially what we have here. Um, it's a word of, of glorious praise that uh, uh, Jude lifts up. But after the whole of the body of his letter, 
he wants to put an emphasis, an exclamation point at the end for some purpose. What good is a benediction? Most often we hear the Aaronic benediction, right? Aaron, as they were, you know, beginning to take the promised land, wanted to assure the people that God would be with them. He said, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And often if you're around, you'll hear this one um, quoted, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But what good is it? Well, it's natural to assume that that's some sort of encouraging word to tell you you're not on your own as you leave here to fight. You have help. But help for what? And many have kind of skewed this verse in the light of recent calamities to say it's really primarily about helping you through physical challenges. COVID! Oh my word, how am I going to protect myself? Oh, I know what, if I have enough faith that he will not let me stumble into the right path of the person who has it, then I will not get sick or, or die. Or someone might say, well, I'm not worried about COVID. There's another physical thing I'm scared to death of. I live in a dangerous part of town where there's some rioting, right? And if I make one wrong turn, I may find myself like that poor guy on the video who took one wrong turn trying to get across town and his car was attacked and they dragged him out and they beat him right in the middle of the street. Or how about those dear souls at the 4th of July party last week? This is given so that if I have enough faith, I won't be a victim. Or maybe we're more worried about the idea of being canceled. You know, if someone were to go back through all of your texts or emails for the last 20 years, could they find something that they would pin on you and all of a sudden your whole career is washed down the drain and you are canceled? Or perhaps it's fears about unemployment. Here we got this recession. They say it's coming. Am I going to lose my job or... Maybe it's not a recession. Maybe it's artificial intelligence and robotics that are going to take the job that I've been pretty good at for 20 years, and all of a sudden I'm going to be out on the street because I got replaced by a robot. Now, now those are legitimate fears, physical fears, but they're not primarily what this text is about. If we had the time to go back and, and look at it all, the chief concern in the letter is that false teachers have moved in to lead people away from the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. Verse 3, if you want to go back and look it up here. And they're teaching people to trust in something besides Christ alone for their eternal salvation. Now, yes, these verses do teach us that God does shield us and guard us to some degree from some of the calamities that befall us ordinarily. But we don't want to twist this into a health-wealth gospel. 
whereby we put ourselves under the false burden that if only I have enough hope, I won't get sick and I won't die. Let me let you in on something. (laughs) You're going to get sick. It may not be COVID. You're going to get something. And eventually you're going to get sick enough to die. So don't put this verse under a false weight that it can't complete. But bring it over into the right realm. Whereas you go out and face all kinds of physical realities that are scary. What this can steal you against is the idea that no matter what befalls you physically, spiritually, if your faith is in Christ... He will bring you all the way home and you won't stumble so as to fall away from the faith once delivered to the saints. And as you're going through this life and you're not all the way to glory yet, you have one who walks with you who perhaps you need to be reminded of. And so... Paul, excuse me, uh, Jude says, who is it that we are walking with? When you leave here, who is it that you are walking with? You are walking with one who is able to keep you from stumbling, who is able. Ability. How much ability does God have? Quite a bit. In fact, more than anybody else that you tend to attribute a lot of ability to short-circuit your life or rob you of some pleasure or whatever. God has all the ability that you could ever imagine and more. Sometimes we're wowed by God's ability to create out of nothing. Now, everybody can fashion something from materials that already exist, right? And that can be impressive. But only God has the ability to create out of nothing. And only God has the ability to create instantly. All of the rest of us have to do it by some type of process. But he creates instantly. And that's wonder of wonders. But God also has the ability to create over centuries. We get wowed when we go to Europe and we say, they say, say it took 100 years to build the Cathedral of Notre Dame. That's nothing compared to centuries after centuries after centuries of God's building this world. God has the ability to interact with human will and accomplish the exact purposes that he wants. Leaders can force external compliance, but they can't touch the heart like God in. This this God we walk with has ability just amazing beyond anything we could ask or imagine. And, And sometimes we are up against a lot in this world because sometimes... Instantly, our life changes. 
right? You lose a child. You lose a spouse. You lose a marriage. Can God's instant overcome the instant events that change your life forever? Yes. Some of you, on the other hand, haven't had the instantaneous event change your life forever. But you've had 50 years of a series of setbacks and heartaches and sorrows. Is God greater than those things? Yes, he is. You know, there are a variety of people we could lift up in that regard. Most of us know Joni Erickson Tata, right? girl who dove in the shallow bay at Chesapeake Bay and uh, broke her neck. She's been living for 50 years now as paraplegic. But her testimony is strong and sure because God's ability to override 50 years of pain has assured her that greater is he who is in her than he who is in the world. We could go on talking about God's power, his ability, but let's take a moment and just see for a second what his ability is guaranteed to ensure. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, stumbling in what sense? Stumbling in the sense that you fall so bad out of faith in God, that you walk away from him. He will not let that happen indeed if your faith and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not arrive at that point where all of Job's worldly counselors say, why don't you just get it over and curse God and die? And God overcomes that long series of calamities and keeps Job from stumbling all the way into everlasting unbelief. And what is his cry of belief? I know that my Redeemer lives and that I shall see him the last day. How does that happen? I'm sure Job read his Bible and I'm sure Job prayed. And I'm sure Job worshipped. He took part of the means of grace. But it wasn't just an act of willpower alone. It was God coming and meeting him in the means of grace, strengthening him all along the way so that he didn't fall into absolute unbelief. God's at work to give us the great encouragement that we need along those very same lines. He says as well, as we go along, he's committed to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. All right, he's going to bring us to himself. Now, that in and of itself isn't intrinsically comforting, is it? Because he's really going to bring everybody before his presence, the sheep and the goats, right? And it's going to be a terrifying event in the life of unbelievers. 
But if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then indeed we get to approach him without fear because he is committed to presenting us without fault. Now, that's a technical, legal standing, right, where the judge says not guilty, and we're thrilled to hear there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but simply being legally forgiven isn't all your Savior is committed to doing. That would be wonderful in and of itself, right? But he wants so much more than that. Because it says he's going to present us there without fault and with great joy. I want to use your imagination for a minute. How do you imagine you're being ushered into God's presence? How do you imagine that going? There's a great sense of anticipation and joy. Or might there be just a little, I don't know how it's going to go. I mean, technically I'm probably going to get in. But, you know, if God were to ask me, have you been a good little boy? Or girl. I know on my own. I'd probably say, okay, God can technically pardon me, but he's going to usher me off to the outer reaches of the kingdom, the cheap seats. (laughs) Because closeness and joy is reserved for the super saints, not me. Well, God doesn't make that distinction here, does he? Can you imagine having a moment of exceeding great joy at your meeting? I was schooled in this a little bit by my grandson, T. Uh, He's, if you don't know, I've got four children. Second son, Thomas, is down in Hilton Head, and we lived in Bluffton, so we'd go out there and babysit a lot. And when T was about two, you know, a day long without daddy, daddy going off to work was exceedingly long. And, you know, Rebecca, the wife, would say, daddy's going to be home in a little while. He'll be home in a little while. He'll be home in a little while. And it just seemed like forever. Well, eventually, uh, Rebecca talked to my son Thomas and said, hey, let me know when you're coming home. And we'll have the kids go sit on the front steps. And they were in one of those typical, um, you know, low country homes. It's elevated. You know, it's Hilton Head. Got to be elevated. So we're sitting at the top of the steps. And T would be, he's a little bit scornful. It's an eternal, you know, all day long is long, but the last 15 minutes is the longest of long. And eventually, though, when my son Thomas's truck would round the corner and start coming up the street, I would see T's countenance change from one of scorn and then he would turn in the driveway and tea so full 
of joy would start to move. And dare I say, there would be dancing on the porch. And as my son Thomas would come and scoop up little tea, what gave him joy was not having his father ask him, have you been a good boy? Thomas knows he hasn't been perfect all day long. But he meets him on the basis of grace. And there'll be time to wither out, I mean, to winnow out rewards for the day's activity. But the embrace and the kind of tickle each other and then little tea with the epitome of boyhood, fatherhood, joy says, Dad, can we take our shirts off and fight? Wrestle. It's boy love and man love mixed together in an explosion of joy. Now, ladies, if you don't get this, maybe your thing is singing. Maybe your dad coming home and singing with you or playing the piano or looking at that quilt and helping you with a little quilt or needlepoint project and your joy overflowing. Now, for us as believers, the roles are reversed, of course. That, you know, God's sitting at the top of the steps. And here we come around the corner in the distance. And the great saints are lining the streets. Here he comes. And God looks and sees us coming. And if you don't completely like the dancing image, just use the image of the prodigal son and the father sees him at a distance and runs with joy to meet the son. And what does the father do then? Consign the son to the cheap seats. He says, come on, we're going to feast. God's questions to us when we arrive in heaven will not be the joy killing. Have you been a good boy or a good girl? He knows none of us could ever be good enough to earn our way into heaven. That's why he sent Christ. And because he has sent Christ, it opens the door for joy and great abundance. Now, that was a belabored, long illustration. Perhaps uh, a hymn might speak it a different way about joy. One of my personal favorites, 10,000 times 10,000 in sparkling raiment and bright, the armies of the ransomed saints throng up the steeps of light. Tis finished. All is finished. Your fight with death and sin. Fling open wide the golden gates and let the victors in. What 
rush of all alleluias fills all the earth and skies. Is that a picture of joy? (laughs) It is to me. What ringing of a thousand harps bespeaks the triumph nigh. O day for which creation and all its tribes were made. O joy for all its former woes. A thousandfold repaid. Oh then. What raptured greetings on Canaan's happy shore. What knitting severed friendships up where partings are no more. Then eyes with what? Joy shall sparkle that brimmed with tears of late. Orphans no longer fatherless nor widows, desolate. My dear friends, we have pictured heaven far less joyful than it should be. We tend to think joy is really kind of what we'll have here. But it's really there in a greater sense than we can ever imagine. We got the foretaste of this in John chapter 2, right? The wedding of Cana. The wedding is running out of wine, the symbol of joy and blessing, right? They come to Jesus, do something. Six water jars, average 20 to 30 gallons apiece. He turns them all into wine, right? So you got how much? You want to do the math? Let's just take a middle round. Six times 25, 150, 150 gallons of wine, 1,000 bottles roughly. Now the point is not they're getting ready to really tie one on. But the symbol of this is unbelievable. It's so much greater most of the parties we go to are like so many of the parties I get here. You ever been to one of those parties where you get there and it's time for the reception and you look in and there's a little bit of food and there's a whole lot of people? What do you do? You take a very polite spoonful and hope there's enough. You ever been to a different kind of party? But there's so much there. You, you go in again and again and again. Hey, it's never running out. And we'll eat that and we'll come back. One of the greatest nights of my life was my wife's 50th birthday party. She's a fun-loving person. She said, I want to have a 50th birthday party. We're going to ask my mom and dad who live over in West Ashley to come over here. And we're all going to have a pajama party. And we're going to, spit, and we're going to watch Anne of Green Gables. So her mom and daddy trade in some of their dignity and drive across 526 praying as they've never prayed before. Lord, don't let our car break down because we're in our pajamas. (laughs) And they come and for once, I didn't play it cheap. I went to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. 
and I got the Lord's platter. And all night long, we kept going and getting all the nuggets we wanted all night long. Kids, don't, I'm not counting for once. Nobody's counting in heaven because we're not taking little polite spoonfuls. What's available is shameful, if you will, spoonfuls. Now, I've been to hymnody, I've been to my grandchild, I've been to my grandparents and my wife. What about Jesus? How about Hebrews 12, 3? It is most difficult hour, the hour of his passion when he was going to stand on that cross. What kept him going? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says that we, like Jesus, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for what? The joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. Is joy of what is in the future motivating you now in the struggles you're in? We don't take advantage of what is to come as we should. My dear friends, take advantage. Use your imagination a little bit to dream of what is to come to help you in your trial right now. Joy is coming and so much more. Jude kind of starts back over again. And he says in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior. Now, who's he talking about there? Typically, you know, he started out in verse 24 talking about God the Father. And is he switching to Jesus here? Uh, He starts talking about Savior. Now, normally, when you see Savior, it relates to Christ. But not always. If you do a a little word study, the word Savior is associated with Jesus 15 times in the New Testament. But it's associated with God the Father nine times in the New Testament. So he's probably referring still to the saving plan and work initiated by the Father. And what further bolsters that idea is that he then goes on to mention, just a clause later, Uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Commentators go back and forth on it. Uh, We don't need to get hung up on the point other than to say, we will get to see God our Savior in the following four ways more fully than we ever have before. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through his work, we will see and he will amass Evermore glory. All right, glory, what's that? My favorite definition of glory when we talk about God. Robert Raymond gave me to this and gave this to me in seminary. The inescapable weight of the godness of God. The inescapable weight of the godness of God. Glory, technically, in its most literal uh, framework, means weightiness. 
And if you want to get a little technical, it's the dimension of God's ontological being, who he is more so than what he's done. Who is he? He's the self-existent one. The only one who had the weightiness or the power to be self-existent. So when Moses says uh, to God, who will I tell Pharaoh that you are? He says what? I am that I am. That's ontological glory. And it's what caused, it's what caused Isaiah to, to bef- appear before God and, and see uh, the glory of the Lord revealed. And what does Isaiah do? He falls down and he confesses what? This, this garment of self-righteousness that I've constructed that made me feel all together before God. It does what? Woe is me for I am undone. I'm disintegrated. I need a righteousness because I am a man of unclean lips. And the angel comes and touches his lips and symbolically gives him forgiveness. Well, glory is who God is. And when we get to heaven, we'll see more there than we ever imagined of his glory. And we'll see the outworking of that as his majesty. Majesty refers to the outworking of who he is internally. So we get to see, for instance, a king's majestic beauty and pomp and circumstance and might as he makes decrees and carries them out. And so we'll, we'll see God's plan for all the ages unfurled in his kingly role. We'll get to see his dominion in greater measure than ever before, right? Over all of the macro world, all of the galaxies that are out there, even the ones that we will continue to discover. And with this new telescope, I'm sure they're going to be saying there's another whatever, many million light years or whatever. God's dominion reaches out there. Just this last week, the particle collider, I don't know what you call them in Europe, said, hey, we just discovered another six, you know, um, subatomic particles. God's domain is over that. And who knows how much more that we've never discovered. And we'll see his authority in greater measure. Since Genesis, people have been challenging God's authority, right? Saying, I will declare to this world what's right and wrong. And we know that those human constructions aren't right. God defines. He has the authority to define what's right and wrong. And we'll see it in greater measure than ever before. Well, putting all of this together, you walk out of here with one by your side who guarantees your passage to heaven without fault and with great joy. That is, if you call him Lord, have you made him Lord or surrendered to his lordship? Have you been sort of keeping God in a box 
and just kind of taking him out when you need him? Or have you said, Lord, all of my righteousness has disintegrated. I'm a man or woman of unclean lips. Give me a salvation that has to come from outside of me and be received by faith. Trust in Christ this day. And you'll have Jesus with you and Jesus ahead of you, both now and forever. Word for the believer. It's been an interesting couple of years watching people kind of cling so tenaciously to this life, right? So worried about getting COVID and leaving this world. I think that points out that maybe they think the joy to be had here is greater than the joy to be had there. Hopefully after this message today, you'll adopt the attitude that the famous Baptist missionary Adoniram, Adoniram, it's hard to say, Judson had towards when God would take him home. He said, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. When the recess bell hits, what do the boys do? Finally, let's go fishing. Let's go run. No more waiting in line. No more be quiet. Let's make some noise. What's so hard for a young boy in school as they make you wait in lines and sit at your desk and go over your tables as drudgery? No joy in it. Maybe today you'll be able to embrace that when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. May we pray. Oh, Lord, I've uh, probably stepped over a line or two somewhere where I did. Forgive me and send your spirit to help them forget that. But where I was on track, cement the gains by your spirit's power. And may we live with a greater sense of how indeed there's going to be a feast in heaven unlike anything we've ever imagined. We look forward to that feasting day, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.